0: but uh i'll go ahead and get started on time here in the interest of being on time so lord thanks a lot for this morning uh it's uh we're blessed to have rain because rain is what uh, makes makes everything grow and you've blessed uh you've blessed the earth with with rain and water and and we're thankful to have it and not being a not being a a famine or something like that but uh sometimes it's hard to remember our blessings when we look around at all this mud and slop so just uh center our perspective on you this morning and give us hearts of gratitude and give us a time this morning where we can concentrate on you and speak to our hearts and challenge us, challenge our faith so we can grow in our faith. Give me the words to say in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, Jamie Coots, Jamie Coots is a—he's is a, uh, a believer or he was a believer, a devout believer. He was the pastor of a church in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, and the name of his church was the full gospel tabernacle in Jesus' name. All right, so so he's this, he's this preacher, and he based his life, and he based his beliefs, and he based his church on a passage in Mark, Mark chapter 16, the last passage in Mark, and it says this, this is what it says in Mark. He says, and he told them, and this is Jesus speaking, "'Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone everywhere.'" Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but if anyone who, re- who refuses to believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name, and they will speak in new tongues. They will be able to handle snakes with safety, and if anything, they drink poisonous, it will not hurt them. And so Jamie Coots, this pa- this pastor in Middlesboro, Kentucky, based his whole belief on these verses, and that's right. He was a snake-handling, a snake-handling preacher. And matter of fact, he was of such well renowned that National Geographic came to him last year and said, "Hey, we want to do a, um, we want to do a reality TV series based on you and your church and snake handling." And uh, so Jamie Cook's thirteen seasons in two thousand thirteen on National Geographic Channel of Snake Salvation. And one of the episodes was, uh, you know, it was, you know how reality TV is. They make a big deal out of, out of everything. And so one of the episodes was he had to go down to Texas. He had to catch the rattlesnakes before they go into hibernation because he had to have these poisonous snakes so he could have these poisonous snakes to handle in this church. Well, a little history, a little, some, some interesting tidbits on snake handling. Number one, it's illegal in three states, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Alabama. Now, fortunately, we're in North Carolina this morning, so we'll be safe here in a few minutes, all right? Illegal in these states. Jamie Coots, as he was filming for this uh, reality TV show, he was driving through Knoxville and he got stopped at a routine traffic stop. And as they inspected his vehicle, they found that he had poisonous reptiles in his vehicle. And so he was fined and cited for, for carrying venomous reptiles without a permit. And um, but so it's illegal in a few states. There's been numerous deaths associated with handling of poisonous reptiles. As I'm sure you can quite imagine that. Uh, snake handling is actually a fair, fairly new movement in, in the world, and specifically in this country. And it dates back to about 1910. A guy named George Went Hensley. George Hensley, when he was a little boy, he lived in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, which is about halfway between Kingsport and Pikeville, Kentucky, right, in Virginia. About 60 miles north of Muddy Creek, all right, to put it in, in our terms so we can understand. About 60 miles north of, of, of Muddy Creek in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, uh, all this Appala- region, Appalachian region. And he, as a little boy, he attended a revival service. And at this revival service, he says he remembers this elderly woman handling a snake. And that always stuck with him. Well, as an adult, George Hensley, he moved down to Ultawa, Tennessee, which is just outside of Chattanooga, down on the Ocoee River. And there's more chairs back there, but you guys need to set things up and get comfortable. I have no blankets, I'm sorry. Uh, so outside of Utica, Tennessee, and this is still on the Ocoee River, the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, the region of Appalachia, uh, George uh, Went Hensley he was a moonshiner during the days of Prohibition. He was running moonshine, he was drinking, he was a rough and rowdy guy. But he ended up going to uh, he ended up going to a church down there, uh, Holiness Pentecostal Church of God, and at that church he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Well, there, a few years later he had some doubts. And I, as a believer, I've had times in my life where I've had doubt. I'm, go out and take a long walk and talk with God, George was doing that, he was walking up the side of a hill, he's talking with God, doubting his faith, doubting his salvation, and he says that as he walked across a meadow, he looked down and he saw a snake, and so he knelt down in prayer, and he grabbed hold of that snake, and it did not bite him, and it was an affirming moment in his life, and so he took that snake back to the congregation at the church where he was attending, and he challenged those people to prove their salvation by handling this snake. And the snake-handling movement began, and George's life completely changed. Unfortunately, he still had a lot of demons he had to wrestle with. He was an alcoholic and struggled with uh, alcohol, went through numerous marriages. But his his whole life mission was to be a snake-handling evangelist. And so he traveled the whole Appalachia region. I love dirt bikes. (laughs) They're sometimes noisy, though. He traveled the whole Appalachia region, and he started uh, having these revival services with snakes with these poisonous snakes. And uh, as of today, in 2014, as far as we know, there are about 40 or 45 snake-handling churches throughout the region of Appalachia and surrounding areas, including North Carolina. The only problem that I can find with these churches is that they handle poisonous snakes. Poisonous snakes will bite you and they'll kill you. For example, 1955, down in Alpha, Florida, our founder, George Hensley, was holding a revival service at an abandoned blacksmith shop having this revival service and he pulled out of a box he pulled this 5 foot long rattlesnake out of the box draped it around his neck and started preaching and he preached for over an hour with this snake and he's handling the snake and he and he's done with his message he goes to put it back in the box and the snake bit him and he died our reality TV show host or star from uh, from the Jamie Coots that I started out talking about, Snake Salvation. Everybody remember where you were at last month, Valentine's Day, February 14th, kind of a memorable day. February 15th, all the guys woke up and said, Woo, I got through that one. Jamie woke up, and he went to church in Middlesboro, Kentucky, and he started handling snakes, and a rattlesnake bit him, and he died. Just a month ago, this guy dies. We started a series down in Florida talking about i believe what do you believe in what do you base your beliefs on and that, that day in florida the the point was it doesn't matter how sincere you are in your beliefs it matters what you believe you can be sincere in something that you believe but it needs to be true well these guys <laughs> we might have more fun watching these guys than talking about snake handling you know what I've been waiting all weekend for somebody to run into that sprinter van over there. I-, I hope it survives the weekend. But this is sketchy. It doesn't matter what you believe if it's not true. And when we talk about snake handling, these guys, they base their beliefs on Mark chapter 16. The problem is, you know, we say that, well, they are just believing the Bible. The problem is, no, they weren't. And you saying, well, wait a second. You mean that they were just misinterpreting the Bible. Well, it's really hard to misinterpret. They will handle snakes with safety problem is Jesus didn't say that. And you look in your Bible and you say, wait a second, those letters are written in red. What you need to look at is at the very bottom of your page in your Bible, and I challenge you with this, look at the very bottom of your page. Or look in there, it might be in brackets, and it'll say the most reliable early manuscripts conclude the Gospel of Mark at verse 8, which talks about the women finding the empty tomb. And then that's the end. No snake handling passage in, 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 with the most early reliable manuscripts. What does that mean? It means. That as of today, actually dating all the way back to the 15th century, the Vatican houses what's called the Codex Vaticanus, something like that. And in this, it's an ancient manuscript, dates all the way back to the 4th century, dates back to about 350 A.D. It's an early manuscript, has no reference. It concludes the Gospel of Mark at verse 8, the women found the tomb empty. In 1844, uh, the Codex Sinaiticus was discovered at Mount Sinai that Codex Sinaiticus also dates back to the 4th century about 320 or 340 AD and neither does it have any mention of, uh, of this snake handling passage. These guys are kinda late. That youth race is supposed to start at 9 o'clock. So our most early Manuscripts don't have any mention of this. The problem is the the first Bible that was translated into English was translated from uh, from some manuscripts that were found in the 8th century that had this reference after Mark chapter 8. And it goes on, it talks about this handling snakes with safety. And some of these guys have based their whole belief system on these things that actually didn't happen. And that's really disturbing because I grew up in church that the Bible is perfect. And what do you mean this didn't actually happen? So as, as, I, was, uh, as I was studying for this, you know, there are a lot of things that are in the Bible that we have trouble with that we don't tend to talk about. And everything that we have, one thing that I need to point out is that we don't have the original copy of any manuscript for any book in the Bible. Everything that we have is a copy of a copy of a copy, and we know it's a well-known fact that there have been some scribal errors throughout the years. Okay, because as a, as a scribe, they didn't have uh, they didn't have copy machines and all that. They had to they had to copy these letter by letter by hand over the years. And so the problem is, is that uh, a scribe might have, uh, might have put a little tick on something. And and, and the next guy that comes along, maybe there's a smudge on the page, or maybe time is worn through the page. And the next scribe that comes along says, well, was that an 8 or was that an 18? For example, um, the wind's helping me out here. Uh, Jehoiakin. Was he 18 years old when he became king of Israel? That's what 2 Kings chapter 24 says, that he was 18 years old. But the uh, parallel passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 says he was 8 years old. Was he 8 or was he 18? Obviously, it's just a scribal error. One guy, uh, as he's translating, it's an 18. The next time he says, well, that's an 8. He translates what he sees. So how is that? If the Bible is perfect... And everybody says that God is perfect, and the Bible is perfect, absolutely perfect, absolutely positively true, but now we've got this passage in Mark that doesn't even exist, are you sure about that? So I started looking at this, and there's a guy down in uh, Dallas, Texas, he's a, he's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, his name is uh, Daniel Wallace, and he's written several books, he's actually written some textbooks, super smart guy, um, and he's and he, he talks about this, he expands on on this dilemma. What happened in Mark? Where did these verses come from? He says there's two schools of thought. Number one, some people think that as Mark was writing, uh, the last page of what he wrote got lost. So he wrote everything down, the last page got lost, so the next guy that copies it, they didn't have the last page to copy, so they just copied what they had. And then about, uh, you know, hundreds of years later, they found that last page, and so they added it back in, and then they lost the original again. Not only does that not make any sense, But loose leaf paper wasn't even invented when Mark wrote his gospel. It is most likely, loose leaf paper wasn't invented until the first century. Mark wrote this about 60 AD. All right, in in the, uh, well, paper wasn't invented until the second century, and Mark wrote this in the first century. Most likely he wrote it on a scroll. It's pretty hard to lose the end of the scroll when you have the beginning of the scroll. So he said, uh, he said according, according to Wallace, the other view is he relates this dilemma to Lee Strobel in the book, The Case for the Real Jesus. On page 93, he says, I think a far better view is that Mark was writing about the most unique individual who has ever lived, and he wanted to format the ending of his gospel in a unique way in which he leaves it open-ended. He's essentially saying to readers, so what are you going to do with the real Jesus? remember mark ends in chapter 8 where it says and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid period the end and Wallace goes on to say uh, so you can see why an early scribe would say oh my gosh we don't have a resurrection appearance this ends with the women being afraid that can't be right and so so someone has taken a poetic license To add to some of Luke's writings from the book of Acts Specifically the speaking in tongues And the passage where Paul gets bitten by a snake And nothing happens to him And so this gets added into Mark later on But our most early manuscripts Our most early reliable manuscripts Go all the way back Ends with the women being afraid But I'm not trying to get too deep here Because I, I don't know anything about textual criticization I can't even say that word Alright, and I can't speak Greek I can't read Hebrew I can't translate Aramaic I am just glad that there are smarter people than me that have figured out that this passage isn't authentic because I don't want to have anything to do with the religious experience involving poisonous snakes. (laughs) Matter of fact, if you pull out a poisonous snake, a snake in front of me, I guarantee there will be a religious experience. Specifically, two commandments of the Big Ten are gonna be broken. The Lord's name is gonna be taken in vain and there will be murder, all right? (laughs) You'll get to see Jesus, it'll be a real religious experience for you, all right? But these have turned out to be inauthentic and And so, yeah, my sign out front here that says Snake handling service, yeah, it lied to you. Just like the Bible's lying to you, right? I mean, how can this be? Because the Bible, I was always taught that the Bible's inerrant and that uh, that it's infallible. But here we find a mistake. How can that possibly be? Several years ago in 2003, Dan Dan Brown wrote a book called The Da Vinci Code. And even if you haven't read it, you've probably heard about it, where he took a bunch of... uh, He took a bunch of historical facts, and he mixed it with a bunch of fiction, kind of stirred it up, and wrote a a novel. He said it's a work of fiction, but there was enough historical fact in there to make the waters kind of muddy and make us all wonder, what about this? About the same time, there was a book that came out called The Knights Templar, and it was about the knights of the the crusade, and uh, I read it. And I knew it was a work of fiction, but it was the same thing where they took historical facts, mixed it with a little bit of fiction to make an interesting story. And in it, one of the uh, one of the one of the characters in this book, uh, a modern day skeptic said to somebody else, said, well, I don't understand the Christians because this is a whole bunch of hocus pocus. The Christians can't the early Christians can't even agree on what happened in that first century about Jesus raising from the dead. I mean, all four accounts of Jesus' resurrection are completely different. In one of them, there's two angels. In another one, there's one angel. and in one, in one version, there's one woman that comes to the grave. Another one has a whole group of women. Even the Christians don't know what they believe. And I thought, oh, really? I mean, uh, this book is fiction, but... I've been in church all my life, I've never heard anything about that. And so I looked it up for myself, and sure enough, in Matthew, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb all alone, and there's an angel outside of the tomb. In Mark, the next gospel, Mary Magdalene and Salome, and Mary, the mother of James, three women come to the tomb, and there's an angel inside the tomb. In Luke, the women from Galilee come, and there are two angels in the tomb. And then in John, Mary Magdalene comes. There's no angels in the tomb. She runs back and gets Peter and John. They come out and they say, yep, the tomb is empty. They leave. Mary stays. And then all of a sudden, two angels are inside the tomb. Four different accounts of the resurrection. And the premise is, if these early guys can't even get their story together, then it's got to be a story. And furthermore, how can you trust a document that's supposed to be actual and factual, but conflicts itself and has mistakes in it? Because if there really were a perfect God, and he really recorded his word, wouldn't he be powerful enough to get his only his story straight and preserve the facts down through the centuries? That's a question that needs to be answered. And I want to answer it the best way I know how today. How is that possible? You see, if you base your beliefs on something and you don't really know what it is that you believe, then it's really easy for someone to come along and make an argument and take away your beliefs that you don't even know what you believe. <laughs> In other words, if you're basing what you believe on something as flimsy as... The Bible says so, or something as flimsy as that preacher at the racetrack says so. It's really easy for someone to come along, come along, and take that away from you and snatch that away from you. So, what do you believe, and why do you believe it? Are you going to stand on it? How can you stand on it, especially as we look at these little dilemmas? What about that inerrant, infallible Word of God? Second Timothy three sixteen is a verse that's often quoted, and it says this. It says, "This is Paul writing to his protege Timothy." He's Timothy. He says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. You see, that's what I grew up with. The Word of God, It's inspired. the, the Bible is the inspired Word of God. As Paul wrote that to Timothy, he said, All Scripture is, is God-breathed, is basically what the Greek says. It's God-breathed. When he wrote that, Scripture that he was referring to was the Old Testament what we know now as the Old Testament. He didn't know that he was writing what's now known as the New Testament. He didn't know that, as he wrote that, that he was writing New Testament Scripture, and that what he was writing, indeed, was God-breathed. But that's what I've grown up with. That's what I've grown to believe. That is still what I believe, is that all Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is God-breathed. It is God-inspired. But I grew up, along with that interpretation of it being God-breathed and God-ordained, I grew up with that to understand it is perfect. Every letter, every word on that page is absolutely, positively perfect. And now, as an adult, and as my faith has been challenged, I'm digging through and I'm finding, man, there's some things here that I don't understand. How do I, how do I reconcile that with the inerrant and infallible Word of God? A few years ago, there was a Muslim, uh, a Muslim cleric named Shabir Ali. And uh, he wrote, he published a document called 101 Contradictions in the Bible. And a lot of these contradictions uh, have to do with like how old was uh, Jeho- Jehoiakim when he became king Is it 8 or 18? That's a contradiction. And the, and the supposition is that uh, a divinely inspired book will not have any mistakes or contradictions. And that's what I thought. But knowing what I know now that God is real, that Jesus was the divine Son of God, that He lived a perfect life, and that the Bible is infallible, how do I reconcile? Am I, is what I'm believing, is that a lie? And so, here's what it comes down to, and I don't want to drag this out, because I want you guys to believe this too, that the Bible is inerrant error, and that it is infallible. I'm not going to drag this out anymore, here's what I'm driving at. God has always used imperfect beings to accomplish His perfect will. God, God has always, I'll say it again, God has always used imperfect human beings to accomplish his perfect purposes. Take, for example, Jesus' disciple Matthew, okay? Matthew was one of uh, Jesus' earlier followers. You remember the story of how Jesus was walking by his tax collection booth and he said, Matthew, you come and follow me. Matthew dropped everything and follows him and, uh, and follows Jesus, became one of Jesus' disciples, totally transformed his life. Saw Jesus hung on the cross, witnessed the resurrected Messiah, and then he, he along with uh, 10 of the other disciples, they go around and they start spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew writes the first book of the New Testament the book of Matthew, obviously, okay? And and Matthew, and if you read the four different Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, His death, His resurrection, you find that they're all coming from a little bit different perspective, okay? Matthew and John were disciples of Jesus, so they have one perspective, and John John's writing more about the crucifixion. Matthew, when he's writing his account, he's talking about, he's a Jew, and he's writing to other Jews, and so he is telling people how Jesus fits the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So all through the book of Matthew, he's referencing back to those old prophets. He's talking about Amos and he's talking about Isaiah. He's going back to, to Zechariah and he's going back to Jeremiah. All through the whole book of Matthew, he's referencing these Old Testament prophecies and how Jesus fulfilled that particular prophecy. And so in Matthew chapter 27, this is after Jesus has, uh, has died and he's talking about Judas Iscariot. You remember Judas who, uh, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? In Matthew 27, uh, he tells about how Judas took that money back to the priest. And he goes to the temple, he says, this is blood money, I don't want any part of it. The priest wouldn't take it back. And so Judas threw it into the temple, and he runs out and he hangs himself. And then the priests say, well, uh, we got this money here, and it is blood money, we don't want anything to do with it. So they bought a field, and in that field, they used it as a cemetery to bury foreigners. It was called a potter's field and so Matthew in verse 9 he said this fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that says they took the 30 pieces of silver the price at which he was valued by the people of Israel and purchased the potter's field as the Lord directed the problem is Jeremiah didn't say that Zechariah said that this is in Zechariah chapter 11 that, that prophecy was, was, was spoken of so what happened here Matthew misspoke I do it all the time Matthew was a human being, an imperfect human being, used by a perfect God to relate the message of Jesus Christ, and he misspoke. My point is that God is sovereign, and there is not one translational error, there is not one scribal error, there is not one human discrepancy that negates anything that God ordained. Everything in the Bible agrees with itself when it comes to matters of creation, when it comes to matters of Abraham, when it comes to the matters of God made a promise to Abraham that he fulfilled all throughout history, sent his only son to this earth, who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, was buried, and because he resurrected, he conquered the grave. Not only did he conquer the grave, he conquered the sin, and by believing in him, we'll have life everlasting. There's not one thing in throughout the entire Bible that, that uh, negates anything that God ordained we have some human discrepancies and some human errors here, but you and I have that in our own lives. And God uses that despite ourselves. And you see, this, this, uh, uh, David Wallace, let me back up here. David Wallace, that professor from Dallas Theological Seminary, he says the Bible is infallible. It is true in what it teaches. The best definition of inerrant is that the Bible is true in what it touches. In other words, it's not a scientific book or a first century historical, 21st century historical document. And he explains back then, back when, when these early books uh, were written, Greek didn't even have quotation marks where they could quote somebody. And so they were, the authors were concerned with getting the gist of what someone said. For example, oftentimes in the Gospels, you read about Jesus preaching for so long that the people were starving by the time he was done. He preached that long that people were hungry. But the longest recorded message, the longest recorded sermon that we have of Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. And you can read the Sermon on the Mount in about 15 minutes' time. You're not gonna. You might be hungry, but you're not gonna be starving at the end of 15 minutes. Okay. So, but we got the gist of what Jesus was saying there. But we don't have any. It's not a, a, a letter by letter verbatim record of what Jesus actually said. It's we're getting the gist of it, and that certainly helps us when it comes to the resurrection. What happened in those gospels? Well, what happened? was that uh, it's kind of like that Vantage Point movie. If you saw the Vantage Point a few years ago where there's an assassination and the investigator is talking to this guy who saw it from this angle and then this guy who saw it from this... They all each saw a little bit different thing. And So when you read the Gospels, the the Matthew and John were the two disciples of Jesus. Uh, Mark was kind of a disciple of Peter. He hung out with Peter. So he's got Peter's account and Mark is a hard-hitting, here are the hard, high-facts. He kind of writes it in a bullet-point format. And then you got Luke, Dr. Luke, who uh, who goes out and he's he's much more educated, more learned man and uh, he's getting a more ra- well-rounded picture of everything. So when you read through the Gospels, you kind of have that vantage point, uh, advantage, really. And so when it comes to the resurrection, The infallible truth is that Jesus was the Son of God. He lived a perfect life, died, buried, and rose again. The inerrant truth is that uh, the, the women came to his grave. It was empty. They saw angels, and they were afraid and didn't know what to do. And there is absolutely no problem with that. That does not negate anything that God ordained throughout the Scriptures. And this has always been God's way. If you look through the Bible, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find out that this has always been God's way. He uses imperfect human beings to accomplish his perfect will. He comes to a pagan moon worshiper named Abram, it says, Abram, I have a mission for you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you with lots of people, lots of land. And through you, all the world's going to be blessed. Abram picks up and he leaves. His name is changed to Abraham. Such great faith that he leaves his family. He says, all right, God, show me. And as he's going to the promised land, he comes across another land. This happens twice where his wife, he says, oh, she is so beautiful. As I come into this foreign land, these men will surely kill me so that they can take my wife. I'm going to say she's my sister and let other men have sex with his wife. That's the founder of our that's the patriarch of our faith that did that made a huge mistake. Moses, God says Moses, I want you to lead the people out of out of slavery after Moses was a murderer. David called a man after God's own heart after he was an adulterer. Matthew wrote the first book of the New Testament and he was a mistaker, He a misspeaker. He said Jeremiah instead of Zechariah. God has always used imperfect human beings to accomplish his perfect will. If you base your beliefs on something that you don't really know what you believe in, then it's real easy to take that away. Therefore, the point of today is know what you believe in. Jesus told a, a parable. He told a, a little short story about a farmer scattering seed. And, and, and you've probably heard the story. It's pretty simple. As a farmer scattered seed, some of it fell on a hard, rocky path, and it was trampled underfoot and never grew. Some of it fell on rocky soil. It sprung up, and then it died right away. Some of it fell in areas with thorns, and as soon as the thorns grew up, it choked it out, and others fell on... Good soil, and it grew, and it produced fruit, a hundredfold fruit, even. And Jesus explained that to his disciples later on, and he said, You know that stuff that fell on the rocky soil? That's the seed that fell, and as soon as, the, as, soon as adversity came against it, it was taken away. We know, that there's, we know that God is real, and we know that Satan's real. And we know that he's going to take away. If he can take away our faith, then he absolutely will. Therefore, know what you believe in. The Bible was written by imperfect human beings, but it was written about a perfect God. Therefore, I stand on what I believe in. And I talked about this last week. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. I believe that He was born of a virgin. I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe that he uh, he was crucified, that he died for my sin, that he was buried and that he resurrected again on the third day. I believe that he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. I believe that he's coming back again. All of these things I can positively stand on. And when the winds have changed and when the sun scorches down on top of me, I can stand on top of that because I know what I believe in. Don't take my word for it. You can go home and you can Google 101 contradictions cleared up. You can read the books by Lee Strobel. You can investigate this on yourself. Know what you believe in. Because the more you believe in it, the better you can stand on it. And Jesus said, let your light shine so that you, so that your men will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are here at the GNCC Race and Nation so that other people can see the glory of God through us. But in order for that to happen, we have to know what we believe on so we can stand on what we believe on. God, we love you. We are just thankful for this moment of peace and quiet. It's as if you just stilled the air around us so that you could reach us and let us know that you love us enough that you sent your son to die for us. We believe that, and we want to live into that. Show us how to do it, Lord. Challenge us in a way that we will grow. Keep us safe as we race this this morning and this afternoon. May we meet again in the name of Jesus. Amen.